0: I'm on now, right? Okay. <clears throat> okay, please come to the connection meetings. You'll have to come to one of them. P- will you will you come to one of them, please? I have two full-time jobs, okay? I have the administrative running, working with the staff, mentoring the staff, writing sermons, all of that. And then there's a whole church of people I want to know. And they're both full-time jobs. And I can only do one. And so these connection meetings, we've designed them to help me jump into that second full-time job and get caught up and get to know you. So please, please come to one of them, okay? Okay, so there's that. Okay, there's another kind of thing that I've been struggling with for a while as a pastor in terms of how much did you try to cover in a sermon? Because I'm going to preach on five chapters of Scripture today. And here's here's the assumption I'm coming with. You are probably in one of two camps— Either you took a couple decades off from God and you're coming back and you're, and you're trying to figure out what a testament is. And when people quote from 1 Timothy, you wonder if that's the last pastor. You know what I'm saying? And so you're kind of like, Pff. and so um, I feel like digging down into one verse in a 1,400 page book doesn't really help you all that much sometimes because you're getting pieces to a 5,000 piece puzzle, but you don't have the box top. And it's hard to figure out where it goes. and how. So I feel like, you benefit from sweeps instead of just little tiny bits. Now, the other thing is, is that um, church squatters who've been here for 50 years, you know, and they, uh, like, three-quarters of their Bible is underlined, they a lot of times they, you know, you study just one verse or just two verses or whatever, and when you—when st- I step back and I go, okay, look at these five chapters, you go, oh, man, because you just haven't been reading the Bible like that for a while. So— this is my default pattern. I won't stay with this when we get into Mark. We'll slow down. But just so you know, if you wonder why on earth I would try to cover this much, that's why. Because I think it scratches where the church squatters and the I took 20 years off people are both living. Okay? And here's the other reason because that's the whole story of Absalom. What do you want me to do? I'm going to pull out a verse. You know, Absalom tripped. Well, we can learn three things from this passage. <laughs> One, Absalom was walking. Two, Absalom wasn't looking where he was going. And three, a few words about baptism. <laughs> now, sorry, right. I stole that from Alistair Begg. Um, now, so, we're, so it might be a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant, but let's, let's roll, okay? When Lexi and I first got married— The introduction is starting now, in case you're wondering what just happened. Um, When Lexi and I first got married, we were given this book by a chemistry professor at SUNY Oswego, which is where we went to school. I know you're impressed. Um, And uh, we're the product of public schools. And it was called Men and Women Enjoying the Difference. Right? That sounds like—that's a good book to get when you get married, right? Men and Women Enjoying the Difference by Larry Crabb. I have a slide. How's that? Sweet. And so you would think, oh, what a wonderful book about— Men and women and enjoying the difference. It must be about gender differences and how to make them a way to unite a couple instead of splitting you apart. Well, you would think that, but that's not what the book is about. That's a pretty little cover to get you to read it. What the book is really about is how you're a selfish scumbag, and so is your spouse. And the the sooner you will start looking to yourself as a selfish scumbag, instead of assuming it's always just your spouse, your marriage is going to go a lot better. That's the first hundred pages of the book. You stink. <laughs> right? You could see how I would get along with that guy. Yes, depravity. Preach it. Right? Now, there was one point Lexi and I were driving around reading it. Like, this is the first month of our marriage reading about us in that context. And there's this, there was this point where both of—he almost lost both of us, okay? And he was talking about a counseling session, because he's a Christian counselor, where he'd, he'd sat down with this girl who had been, no kidding, uh, long-term sexually abused. And he was like her third counselor, and she wasn't getting any better, okay? And the first two counselors had kind of done the textbook approach, and, and nobody was getting anywhere. So she comes to meet with this guy, and she's going on about this, and the abuse, and what's happened, and these relationships she's gotten into, and how her life is just imploding, and, you know, and, and um, she, she gets to the point. She turns to Larry, and apparently she was expecting just a hug. You know, like, oh, sweetie. And you know what he said to her? At least what he reports to him. He says, you know why you're not getting any better? It's because of your selfishness. You can't imagine that this could happen to you. And because you are God in your own little world, how, this, this is a tragedy beyond earthly proportions, and so it can, it can never be gotten beyond. And so you can never get beyond it, and so you can't ever deal with it. And so now you will be the consistent victimizer for the rest of your life for you, even though the, you're no longer a functional victim from the past. You're not—you're never going to get any better. I can't help you, right? And she apparently eventually got better because that really was the problem. And, and Lexi and I are reading this. I'm, I'm reading this book out loud. We're pulling into like Target or something in Chicago, and we're looking at each other like, I don't think that's what you're supposed to do when somebody comes in and says that they're— But I think he intentionally put it in the book because he, what he was trying to argue was, no, it goes all the way. That we, we all have stopping lines where, oh, but here's the, here's, here's the s- sneaky little problem is that sense of entitlement. I've been a victim, I've been hurt, I have pain, and therefore I have the right to blank. Fill in whatever you want. One of the things I think that is the big thing that emerges from Absalom's story is that God's blessing attends on spiritual brokenness, not just emotional damage. Emotional damage and spiritual brokenness aren't the same thing. And sometimes we confuse ourselves as Christians because we use the word brokenness basically to refer to both of them. Okay? When we say brokenness, we may be referring to just emotional damage. Somebody's suffering from brokenness, right? They have an emotional brokenness that comes from life's problems or injuries, right? Or we could be referring to a biblical doctrine of what we call spiritual brokenness, Which is a deep seated humility that's the result of, that results from problems and injuries that God uses to break down our pride and willfulness. They're totally different things. And we use the same word to refer to both of them, and that can get very confusing. Now, what, and the confusion that that often leads to is it leads us to accidentally agree with what the culture is already telling us, and that is, if God is worth his salt, then anybody who's emotionally damaged must be automatically blessed because they've been hurt. If they've been hurt, you can't ask anything from them because they've been hurt. And so they're just blessed automatically. Whatever the plan is for everybody else that God has everybody else on, it does not apply to somebody who's been hurt or damaged or victimized. Those people get a free pass, right? And you get this from— And and you say, well, wait a second. Isn't God on the side of the victimized? I mean, isn't he on the side of the oppressed? Yes, he is, in the sense that when there is a fundamental conflict between the oppressor and the oppressed calling out to God, Scripture says God is on the side of the oppressed. In that human conflict, in terms of how God executes his providential work in the world, he is on the side of the victim, both automatically and especially when the victim cries out to him. Right? So you get verses like that. Do not move an ancient boundary stone, i.e. steal somebody's land, or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong, and he will take up their case against you. Right? Or Proverbs 22, 22, and 23. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case. Get the pun? Don't crush them in court, for the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. Right? So there is a biblical doctrine of God fighting for the oppressed. That's true. That is a biblical doctrine. When we oppress anyone, we make God our implicit enemy in our relationship with that person. God is always on the side of righteousness and justice. Therefore, if somebody is oppressed, he is on their side in that sense. But that does not mean that that person is automatically righteous. The oppressed person is not automatically righteous. The poor are not automatically better or spiritually deeper or more mature than anybody else. The fact that you are hurt, broken, oppressed, or damaged does not make you godly. And the fact is, is that whatever walk of life or place you come from, each different place has its own franchise idolatries. Its own sins that are specific to that place. For example— Are poor people or rich people or middle class people likely to be more spiritual? What is the relationship between how much money you've got and how spiritual you are? Let me push it even further. What is the relationship between how much money you've got and how much you are subject to greed, specifically? Well, I can't tell a bit of difference. I mean, David says in one place, he says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Because why? Because if I'm poor, what am I—I'm subject to the franchise temptation of desperation, right? Desperation gives us the sense that we have to do things. Well, I'm desperate. I have to do this. I have to go into more debt. I have to shack up with this person. I I have to do this because I'm poor. I'm desperate. I need to do these things or I'll never get ahead. So I've got to do it. So desperation is the franchise temptation of the poor. But there's also a franchise temptation of the rich, right? Pride. I got this money. I did this. I made good decisions. I—all the—all the— the schooling. I worked hard. I did these things. I won. And because I won, I deserve, and I have, and and I don't have to give any of it. And then the middle class is just caught between the two. (laughs) I mean, they think they have to live like this, and so they feel desperate, and so they spend more money than they've got, but at the same time, they look at They look at the poor, and they have this reality check, and they go, oh, well, but then we still get arrogant about how much we've got because there's people who have less than us, and the middle class are flopping back and forth between the two franchise temptations, and it all goes round and round, and everybody thinks that somebody else has it better. And the poor think that the rich, well, they have everything they need, so they don't feel desperate at all. They ought to be perfectly righteous. And the rich say, well, the poor can't get confused about how happiness is found. They're forced to find happiness in relationships and people, which is how God intended it. So the poor must be happier. False. False. Every walk of life has its franchise temptations. The biggest question for us is, what is my walk of life, and therefore what is the franchise temptation for the specific place I am in, and then how can I get on guard against it? That's the question. That's the question. And that's one of the reasons we naturally segregate ourselves in churches. Right? Because if I come into High Point Church, and I, and I think of High Point Church as this like middle class, what I, I don't preach at, the franchise sins of rich people, and I don't preach at the franchise sins of poor people. And so, who doesn't come to the church because they're not being spoken to? That's because we, t- we tend to recognize these franchise sins in the way we do worship and do preaching, right? Now, here's, here's the bad news. Emotional pain, damage, victimhood does not give anyone an inside track to holiness or righteousness or salvation. It doesn't give anyone a free pass on being an idolater. It doesn't matter how hurt you've been, how abused you've been, how damaged you've been, how poor you've been, how broken you've been. It does not give you a free pass. A free pass on salvation, a free pass on following, loving, and serving God, a free pass on treating each other lovingly, a free pass on giving other people grace and the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't give you a free pass. You don't get to be an idolater and wallow in how bad things have been for you and expect everybody to be great to you and treat you perfectly and handle you with kid gloves because you've been hurt, even though it is simultaneously a dramatic tragedy that you have been hurt. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, man, Nick, it's like your fourth sermon. I mean, do you have to start this sermon out by like, being mean to hurt people? And how does this have anything to do with Absalom, right? And here's what I'd say about that. This is everything to do with Absalom. And here's what I would say about this. Love warns. Love warns. The greatest spiritual and psychological danger— one, uh, I don't want to say without grace. One of the greatest spiritual and psychological dangers for abused and broken people is a self-righteous entitlement mentality. And here's what I would say about this. Everybody's damaged and broken. It's just to different degrees. I, I believe I'm talking to everyone. Some people more dramatically hurt than others, but all of us have been victims in one level or another, in one place or another, in one way or another. Okay. If, if your victimization doesn't destroy you by just crushing you, like some, right? some people are just crushed by it, and they're destroyed by being a victim that way. They're just crushed by it. If But other, what do other people do? I can't let this crush me. I need to pull up my life by my bootstraps. I need to be strong, right? But what happens? If it's not connected to God, if it focuses within I'm going to be strong, it becomes a new kind of idolatry. They escape the victimization by becoming the strong man, by becoming an idolater, by focusing on themselves. I was victimized. Now I'm going to stand up and fight and win. I'm going to deliver myself from these trials and struggles and problems and issues. I'm going to come up with functionalities. I'm going to come up with coping mechanisms. I'm going to step forward and I'm going to do this. And if we're not destroyed by being crushed by the victimization, we can end up being destroyed by being hardened by it. And there's this progression that really naturally happens if we don't recognize God's place in humbling us even when we're broken. When we are at the very bottom of emotional brokenness, it's, I know it's odd to think so, that is one of the fertile places for pride to grow. You would think, well, how? I'm, how could I be more humbled? No, 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 no. The question is, how could you be more damaged? And I don't know. But, but, Damage and brokenness does not equal humility. Humiliation and humility are not actually the same thing. And they can easily be mistaken for the other. And if you think in your humiliation you must automatically be humble, what are you not going to be intentionally building? The humility, because you think you get it automatically, and you don't. And so pride grows. And then idolatry grows. And so first you focus on yourself, because you've been hurt, and then It feeds a sense of personal indignation. How could this have happened to me? And if you don't think it should have happened, you're really accusing providence, how the world works, which means you're really ultimately accusing God whether you're conscious of it or not. That expands your sense of entitlement and means that if God can't manage a good providence for you, then who's the only person left that can? You, right? Right? That embitters you against God's providence and blessing, and eventually it'll make a victimizer out of you because you won't stand under God's limitations of what you can do to get the blessing for yourself. I mean, do you remember the first time you heard that the most, the most likely person to sexually abuse somebody is somebody who's been sexually abused? Remember? The first, you know, after a while, we just get desensitized to that because you just hear it over and over again. But I mean, the first time you hear it, you kind of go, what? Are you serious? How could somebody who went through the crucible of that subject somebody else to it? That's, that's crazy. That's how. Oh, sorry. That's how. Right? So what I want to do is this. I have—this is what I have to tell you. It is not enough to get over your emotional hurts and victimizations. We need to apply faith to our wounds in order for them to produce the greatest human good, which is spiritual brokenness. Which is the ultimate sense where God is absolutely God and we are absolutely human beings, and so we are constantly in a state of repentance and contrition and humility, and from that, Joy. And this is—and if you can hear this, this has everything to do with Absalom, because Absalom is the quintessential icon of brokenness gone bad. He is the biblical poster child for somebody who's been abused, who becomes the abuser because he goes through this process because he won't be humbled. And within that story, God places another character who's a foil to him that shows the opposite attitude. So let me walk you through this story, looking at these two things. The first is this. That here's the danger. Here's the danger we should be warned about. And that is that this entitlement hardness that can grow out of our victimization is the franchise idolatry of broken victims. If, if, where, to whatever level you are broken, that brokenness will grow this unless you are specifically careful to fight against it. Okay? Now, you may be sitting there thinking, no, wait a second, I remember reading about Solomon, or Absalom, and Absalom did not sound like a guy who had it that tough. I mean, wasn't he actually described as like the handsomest guy in the Bible? And that's actually true. Um, as far as descriptions go, Absalom is, is a candidate for the handsomest man in the Bible. It says in 1 Samuel fourteen twenty-five. 25, In all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Right? Now, he was also— This is an interesting thing. Absalom was a prince. He was the son of David, but but Absalom was actually double royalty because it says in 2 Samuel 3, 3 that the third— See that? The third Absalom— Does this have a has a laser? Can you see? Oh, look at that. The third Absalom, son of— Makkah, daughter of Talmali, king of Geshur. That's, that's the Aramites, that's modern day Jordan. So his, Solomon, Absalom's mother was a Jordanian princess. His granddaddy was a his maternal granddaddy was a king too. So Solomon's daddy was a king, and his maternal granddaddy was a king. This guy had royalty all over him. I mean, talk about privilege, right? Okay, that's, we're not to that yet. <clears throat> so, and he's wealthy. And he's all of this. And you go, wait a second, Nick, this isn't a story of somebody who's hurt and victimized. This is a story of somebody who's privileged. And here's my response to you if you think that. Exactly. And stop going through your life in suburbia and Madison thinking that all the privileged together people aren't dramatically broken under the veneer surface of their coping mechanisms. Privilege and togetherness and success are, is not mutually exclusive to brokenness and victimhood. They're not. They constantly coexist everywhere you go. And here's, here's one last little snippet on that. Nor in you. The fact that you are together in here and you drove a little car and you have a little house and you, you, you won and you're successful or whatever— doesn't mean that you're not seething with victimization brokenness under the veneer. The fact that you won, the fact that you've gotten this far doesn't mean you're past it over it, and that it's not creating this exact problem right now. Or that even this kind of entitlement hardness wasn't the thing that made you successful. Now, 2 Samuel, Samuel 14 isn't the first place Absalom comes up. Absalom's story starts in chapter 13. Now, it's, it's part of a bigger story about David screwing up his whole family that starts a few chapters before that. But the first thing that's, tol- thing that's told about Absalom isn't actually told about Absalom. It's told about his sister. Now, you can imagine what Absalom's sister was looking like if he was the handsomest man in the Bible, right? It's a pretty nice looking young lady. Now, the, the first son of David was a guy named Amnon. Now, Amnon just fell head over heels madly in love with his stepsister. Okay, say ooh if you want to. I'll give you a little pause. Um, but he just was like all up infatuated with his stepsister, Tamar, who was Absalom's sister. And, you know, he just he couldn't figure out how he could—I mean, he, he'd have to get David to agree for them to marry and that was not widely done. And so he was kind of beside himself because he really wanted to have her as his wife, but he couldn't pull it off. And what was he going to do? So one of his friends said, hey, here, pretend like you're sick. Send word to your dad that um, you're sick and that you need somebody to come and feed you and you'd like for it to be tomorrow because she's your, she's your uh, little stepsister. And, um, you know, then she'll be there and then you can, you know, whatever. And so he does exactly that. So Tamar comes and she cooks for him and whatever, and he pretends he's sick. And then he gets to the point where she's going to feed him, and he goes, send out all the attendants, because I I don't want to eat in front of everybody or with some kind of lame excuse like that. So everybody leaves. It's just Tamar. And so then this is what happens. It says in 1 Samuel 13. But when she took it to him, meaning the food to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. And then she says in verse 12, don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of those wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king, and he will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. I'll get into why she says that in a minute. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of here and bolt the door behind her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing, and she put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. That's how the story of Absalom starts with the rape of his little sister. And the way this plays out is he finds out about it. Her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate, wo- desolate woman. So word got out and um, she's never going to marry anybody. And so she just lives single, desolate, forever, the rest of her life in Absalom's house. Now, the, the reason why that's, that's interest, partly interesting is because not only do, does his little sister get raped, but she doesn't get any minutiae of justice from their dad. Because it explicitly says David found out about it and that he was furious, but then it doesn't say he did anything. And the Torah, the law of the Jewish people, explicitly said what was supposed to happen in this case, which you would think something should be cut off, right? But what the Torah actually says is this. In Deuteronomy 22, if a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, which is a fairly large dowry. He must marry the girl for he has violated her and he can never divorce her as long as he lives. Now, I realize— For some of you guys, you're like, whoa, that sounds like punishing the victim. That doesn't sound good at all. Well, here—I'm not going to spend time sociologically defending this at this moment, but let me just say this. That is explicitly what Tamar wanted. Remember before where she said, she says to her—to Amnon, throwing me out would be a worse sin than what you've already done? Right? So however you slice it That was the justice Tamar actually wanted It was prescribed by the law And it was ultimately for her good Because she would be able to have children and in a non-social security society That's your future It would be better for her to be married to this guy And for to get over his scumbagness Than for her to just be a desolate woman Living with no one For no one With no one For the rest of her life So Absalom's little sister gets raped. Then he doesn't get any, she doesn't get any justice. She's living in his house. He sees her every single day, and Scripture says that his first daughter, he actually names after her. Which tells, I think, that says a little bit about him never quite getting over it, right? And then um, it says this, and you—in you would. In fact, we, in fact, Lexi found this on a skeptic's website about all those contradictions in the Bible. You know all those contradictions in the Bible that make it so obvious that it's not true? Well, here's one of them. In 2 Samuel 14, 27, it says this. Sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. The daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. Right? And then in 2 Samuel 18, 18, which is right after Solomon has died, it says this. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now, you could see that as a wild, crazy Bible contradiction that just shows that you shouldn't believe in that stinking book. Or you can recognize that infant mortality was extremely high in the ancient world, and his three sons probably died. Which is much more likely. And so not only has he gone through this injustice, but he's gone through the basic straight up pain of watching three sons be born and die. So th- this is a guy who's, who's acquainted with pain, okay? This is a guy who's watched victimization happen in, a, in, in his immediate family, okay? This is a guy who gets that, Now, the problem then is, what happens? What happens when this happens to a person? And that is the sad thing about Absalom's life. The first thing that happens is he becomes personally delusional in the sense that he really starts to believe that he's the only good one left. He's the only one that knows the right thing to say. He's the only one that can really bring about justice because his daddy didn't bring about any justice and his sister didn't get any justice, right? So surely he's the only just one left right? It's kind of the idea that if, you know, those politicians are awful, but if we were the politicians, we'd be so much better. You know what I mean? It's sort of that mentality. You're insane, but we really think that. And that's what, how we're is. He says, then Absalom would say, this is, he, he, when he came back from exile, he'd get outside the city, and he just, he talked to all the people coming in the city for justice, and he'd say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you, which is probably just false. He just wanted to be that guy. And then he says this. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who had a complaint or a case would come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Right? If I were in charge, all this victimization would end. If I were the one with all the power, there would be no oppressor. I would give justice to everybody. Does that sound good? He's insane. He'd already proven He could never be that guy because the chapter before this, he kills his brother. When the Torah explicitly said justice in this situation was he had to marry Tamar and he could never divorce her. But he killed his brother because his brother needed to die, even though it didn't help his little sister. Didn't help her. She still got to live unmarried apart from everybody else as a desolate, disgraced woman the rest of her life. That's what she got. But Absalom, good for him. He got to kill his brother. I bet he'll feel better. But that's exactly what we do when we take on ourselves this idea. I can dispense justice. Not even God is really with it enough, or his providence would be working it out a lot better than this. So give me the keys. And friends, I'm saying that's us. That is the first temptation to us when we start to deal with our own victimization. I'm going to skip that because we need to roll. Then, then what happens is this. He, through that process of like flattering people and saying, I'll give you justice or whatever, he wins over a lot of the people in Israel. And so he sets up this coup to become king because he really ought to be king, Right? I mean, if there's ever going to be a good king, it's got to be him, because he's the only one any good. I mean, David. So... He puts together this coup, and he gets a bunch of people together. They proclaim him king in Hebron, which is this—the town where the kingdom was first set up. And then he—and then he comes back, and David finds out that Absalom is coming to fight. And so David doesn't want the city of Jerusalem to come to war, right? This is a fight in his family. So David takes the fight out into the desert. He gets all of his fighting men together and everything in his household, and he goes out into the desert. The only thing he leaves behind are ten concubines, which are kind of like pseudo-wives— They're they're technically royal women, okay? And he leaves them behind to sort of care for the castle because it is his palace. And then he goes with everybody else out into the desert. So Absalom shows up in the palace and he brings forward these two guys that are kind of counselors, they're they're advisors. And he says, okay, I've been crowned king. I've gotten the castle. I got my daddy to run. I'm going to have to go after him. But what should I do to make sure that I stay king? And this is what he says. Absalom said to Athithophel, who's the top advisor in the kingdom, Give us your advice. What should we do? Atithophel answered, Lie with your father's concubines who he left to care for the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have, been ma- you have made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. Right? You'll make the whole thing irreparable. Right? If you rape your father's concubines, pseudo-wives, these are royal women, you'll demonstrate that you're the king and, and, and there's no going back now. There's no way to go, oh, mistake, sorry daddy. Can I come home? Or let me just run off to my granddaddy again. It's over. So you're on one side or another. So everybody who's with you will be with you. Absolutely, because there's no going back now. And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof so everybody could see and hear. And he laid with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, That's bad enough, just on the face of it. But think about, just think about the irony here for a second. This is a guy who said, just put me in charge. I'll give, I'll give justice to everybody. I won't be like these wicked people who can't run anything. But what did he do? Why did he hate Amnon so bad? Because Amnon seduced and raped his little sister, right? And so how does, how does Absalom show how great a man he is? He seduces the whole kingdom of Israel into war. And then he rapes ten women, not one. That's how this plays out. Because after a while, his authority as the victim who's really going to bring about good things becomes more central than the limitations of God's commandments. Even those have to be pushed aside so that the goal can be accomplished. Right? You get to the point where the ends just frankly justify the means. Because, listen, we live in a world of perpetration. We live in a world where people victimize people. And all these pretty little laws in the Bible that you should follow that are moral, listen, that might be the luxury of the rich or the people who have good lawyers, but people like us, we've got to fight. We've got to scrap. We've got to be practical. We can't be fiddling around with this little command or that little command. That's what happens. And listen, you need to understand when when Absalom was saying, Let me be, he wasn't he wasn't playing. He wasn't just being fake. He really believed he was righteous. He really believed he was. He probably thought he was growing spiritually. He probably thought he was becoming the kind of man God wanted me. He probably thought he was going to lead Israel into a new dynasty, a new day, a new world, a new utopia. He was insane. But, but here's— Friends, that is the franchise idol of victimhood. You and I are just as susceptible to that dynamic. Yeah, we might not be keen. We may not rape 10 people. But that dynamic of self-justification, that dynamic of self-centeredness, that dynamic of us becoming the idol because we deserve it, We are really susceptible to that. Really susceptible to that. I mentioned before the well-known relationship between sexual abuse and sexual perpetration of abuse. But here's a little one. One of the things that I do as a pastor now when I do a funeral is I'll pull in the family right before the funeral and I'll say this. Listen, people are going to come through the receiving line. You know, like the, the hours where you go and you like greet the family. So, listen, people are going to come through this receiving line and they're going to say stuff to you that is just going to make you furious, okay? That's what's going to happen. They're going to come and they're going to say, well, he had a good life, but now he's with the Lord, and that's just going to strike you the wrong way. Even though it's true, you're just going to get mad. Or somebody's going to say, well, you really need to trust in the Lord. They're going to say stuff that's spiritually obvious and you're going to get upset. And just don't let it upset you, okay? They don't know what to say. They mean it well. Just, you know, don't let it infuriate you or you're just going to have a bad night, okay? So, just relax. Now, Think about that That is exactly The same dynamic When you lose your job Or you lose a loved one Or something bad happens to you And somebody comes up And they say something That's absolutely true Like you know what We really need to trust The Lord right now And you go Well that's a pretty Insensitive thing to say Isn't it? You know? Or A a lot of you know That um That um I have a My my youngest is, is disabled He has a condition Called arthrogryposis And um you know, so Lex and I have struggled both with the joys and the sorrows of having a disabled kid. And so, you know, people, people often come up to us and they'll say stuff like, well, God is really doing something wonderful, isn't he? And I'm like, inside, you know? But, you know, what do I say? Oh, he sure is. God bless you. We have these really good friends I don't want to say anything more than that Because I don't want to identify them And they've tried really hard to have a baby Really hard to have a baby And um, the girl is just the kind of girl That really ought to be a mom And the guy, I mean he's just one of these few guys Who actually wants to be a family man And just be there and dote on children and be, you know, be around Instead of like go fishing or something And I mean it's this kind of couple you're like Oh they should have kids And he's, you know, anyway And so their first um, Their first pregnancy that went very long. They carried this, this little boy to term. He was born and he died in like 20 minutes. And they knew, month four or so, that this he had huge problems. And um, and this has happened a couple more times. Now There, there have been three as far as I know. Uh, similar deals. Miscarriages past month five. And these are f- pretty spiritually mature people, okay? These are people who really went through a hard run of college ministry with us. We consider them very spiritually mature people. But while I was hanging—while well, we were hanging out with them after the third one, and they were, we, they were talking about whether or not they were going to try again or what, um, we just sensed this—the uh, rest of their Christian life seemed fantastic, but we could just sense in this area there was this indignation against people who said things like, well, you can, you can have another child. Hopefully you can have another child. And he'd say something like, yeah, well, that makes me feel better that three of my kids have died. Right? And on one level, we, you know, we have this kind of victim mentality where we go, well, you know what, he's entitled to that. Well, be careful. Be careful the amount of bitterness you allow yourself because you've been hurt. Because this is what it grows, friends, like weeds. Now there's another character in this story that I want to talk about really briefly. And that is, that is David. Because David doesn't say, I'm entitled to kingship. He, run, he goes out in the desert. He says, I'm not going to subject Jerusalem to a fight and a siege. These people don't need to starve or be killed. And he says, when Absalom comes, he'll put the city to the sword. So he goes out into the desert. And as he's going, um, he's leading all these people. And this guy comes out. And this is what it says in Samuel 16. As King David approached Behurim, a man— from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. Now, of course, Saul's family hates David. They had a, f- a huge military feud. His name was Shimei, son of Girah, And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David with all, and all the king's officials with stones. And though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. Now, now think about this. If you read another part of the Bible, David had like 30 dudes who could— pull Goliath's head off with their bare hands. Okay, he had the 30 mighty men, and then he had these four other warriors that you just, you just do not want to run into them on their bad side. Okay, these guys were amazing fighters. David himself had killed Goliath, won battles. They used to say that Saul had killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And this dude shows up on a little bit higher part of the hillside with David, David and these guys around him. And he th- is throwing dirt and rocks at David. Okay, this guy is crazy. It's crazy. Any one of them could just go. Don't shoot a bow. Don't shoot a bow when you have an ear mic on. Right? Any one of them could have done that. It would have been over. Right? As he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops special around them. Verse seven. As he cursed. Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. It's kind of insulting. Kind of insulting. Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said to the king, He's one of these dudes, okay? Abishai is one of these dudes. And he says, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? He's talking to David now. Let me go over and cut off his head. <laughs> Not just let me shoot an arrow and kill him and just scare it. I mean, let me go. I'll cut his head off and we'll throw it on the ground while I walk over it. You know, kind of deal. But the king said, what do you, you and I have in common, you son of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord sent him, said to him, curse David. Who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all of his officials, right? So he stops. They're, while they're getting pelted, he stops and turns around the donkey and he says, my son, who is of my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And then listen, listen to the attitude here in verse 12 it may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I'm receiving today. So David has been continued along in the road while Shimei was going along the hillside. Okay, think about this. He wasn't just one spot. He kept going, following them, right? Hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. A little while later, after there's this big fight with Absalom and Absalom happens to be killed and David is coming back as the king again, um, this same guy shows up. He goes out to meet him on the far side of the Jordan and he throws himself on the ground in front of David and he says, please, my lord the king, be forgetful. And Abishai, the same guy stands up and he goes, David, now it's time to relieve this guy of his head. Now that God has vindicated you, right? I mean, before you were like, well, maybe God is, you know, maybe God is punishing me. Who knows? Let's. We just got to leave and we'll see. He's like, now, clearly, God has vindicated you. You win. God is blessing you. Now, it's time for that guy to lose his head. You know what David says? He says the same thing. He— Abishai says, shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He has cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, what do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death today in Israel? Do I not know that today—do I not know that today I'm king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. At the end of David's life, just before he dies, he actually gives command to Solomon, who will be his successor, a few people who need to die. He, di- he goes, listen, these, these guys need to die. They have done penalties worthy of death. And now that God has ultimately vindicated me to the very end, and I know that he has blessed my actions, that means that he must curse theirs. And, and Joab, one of his right hand men, man, is one of them. But this guy isn't. Joab, the guy who fought with, fought with him and fought with him and fought with him and fought with him, one of his best friends, he says you've got to kill him. Why? Because Joab had murdered people. That's why. He had murdered two people. Joab had murdered a member of his own family because David had promoted him over him. He had murdered the head of Saul's army because he didn't want this guy Abner to, be, to, to fight with him. So he stabbed, not in battle, not in war, He just murdered him. And David said, he has to die for that. He's a murderer. He didn't just fight in battles. He murdered men without honor. He has to die. But this guy lives. See, that's a totally different attitude. It's a totally different attitude. Where God is God. He's this— He's in charge of things. And and we look at the providence that is strange. David's like, my own son's coming to kill me before that. Saul was constantly trying to kill him. Meanwhile, God was saying, you're going to be king. I think you're fantastic. And David's—his whole life is this tragedy and victimization. And yet he gets to this one where he could very well kill who needs to be killed. And he just says, listen, we need to let God be God. I'm not going to break God's laws and spit on his directives because I have to accomplish something for myself. I'm going to see what happens. And maybe God will vindicate me then. Maybe he won't. I don't know. That, friends, is a totally different attitude. And it's from David that we get that whole idea of a broken spirit. And it's in Psalm 51 where it says this. He says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken—now, he doesn't leave hanging what he means by broken. A broken and contrite heart. When he says broken, he means contrition, humility, repentance, deference to God to be God so that he would be just a man. He said, that kind of a heart, God, you will not turn away from. You will not despise. Here's the interesting last thing about this. Do you know when David learned that lesson again? When he wrote that, he wasn't a victim. When David wrote that verse, he was the victimizer. Psalm 51 was a psalm that David wrote after he had stolen this guy Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and then offed him along with a bunch of men in his unit by sending them into a military trap. And then God sent a prophet to say, dude, I saw that. So essentially, it was kind of a longer prophecy, but that's basically what Nathan was supposed to get across. Dude, he saw that. And then David doesn't say, well, I'll secure my kingdom all the more. No, he goes, you're right. You're right. I, I, to- I just did that. And, and then he writes this psalm. And see, remember this I showed you before of Absalom's monument? This is from the turn of the last century. It was a book, archaeological book written. And can you see what it says at the very bottom? It says, place of the captivity of J.C., Jesus Christ. When Jesus was taken to be jailed for the night, he was taken from Jerusalem down this valley and up onto the side of this hill where he was kept for the night. And when he did that, guess what he walked right by? Absalom's monument. You know, when I was writing this, and there's nothing in the Gospels that says this, but as I was, I was writing this, I was wondering if he looked at that thing, and he thought about what he was going to do. Because, because Absalom, in one sense, represents all the victims that Jesus came to save. Jesus has come to save victims— and he didn't just come to save, them, vic- save victims as the strong man who was never victimized. Jesus was victimized more than you have been victimized to save you as a victim. You remember when he was, when he was on the cross and there was a, a guy next to him and, he, and one of, one of the, the thieves cursed him and the other one said this. He said, don't you fear God? He's, saying, he's speaking to the other thief on the other cross. Don't you fear God? Since you and I are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Right? He was acknowledging the fact that Jesus' crucifixion was absolutely wrong. Now that's not just an injustice. That's victimization. I mean, how do you get more victimized than beaten to death and nailed to wood? You tell me. And you might say, no, I suffered. That was one day. I suffered for years. Yeah? Well, you look me in the eye and you tell me you'd trade. And I think if you would tell me you trade, you, you would trade, you're a long way down that list of that growing entitlement because that's crazy. And Jesus became that kind of victim to save victims. But that little piece of stone, I think, represents something else too. It represents that Jesus came to save the victimizers. He didn't didn't just come to save you sweet victims. He came to save the people who perpetrated all that against you. And here's why that's mostly good news. Because just like Absalom, most of us are both. Virtually everybody will will receive abuse and abuse in their lifetime. Now, and you may say that you're on the positive on the balance— And you may feel good about that. I don't think you should feel good about it. I remember I was was talking to Ryan, my intern, this week. I said, listen, when you're a parent, you're going to abuse your kids. It's just how much. You're never going to just perfectly do everything completely in their interest all the time, in every way, in all—I mean, you are going to hurt your kids. It's going to happen. It's just how much can you minimize it? That's what parenting is. How much can you minimize it? And then how much can you bless them with positive things so that it doesn't damage them all that much? Because you stink. I stink as a parent. I mean— Everybody is going—you are a victimizer. And a victim. And Jesus came to save the mixtures that we are by becoming the great victim, gladly. And and here's what he said about his victimhood. He said to Pilate, he said, you couldn't do this to me if I didn't let you. Jesus is the great victim in that, to the very depth of his victimhood, it was completely voluntary. Completely voluntary. Voluntary. To save both victim and victimizer. To save you. To save me. So that we would not make our lives into silly monuments that tourists take pictures of and laugh at. But so that we would be like David and have a humble and contrite heart. And that we would even face the times when we are made victims with joy. Because in Hebrews 12, it says what? That Jesus endured the cross. Why? Because there was a greater joy set before him. And you can only have that joy when you are racing after and clinging to and believing in the great victim who saved all victim and victimizers who would follow him. Let's pray. Father, we pray. We pray that you would not let us ignore the painful lesson of Absalom. We pray that um, our lives would not in any degree be the sort of disaster his was for that reason. We recognize that he is a big example of something that happens very secretly and in small ways in our hearts. And it's, we, we come before you recognizing that it's very difficult for us to see this dynamic and to bring it out and to root it out and to have faith and to come to you and to have this contrite, broken heart developed in us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us. Give us your Holy Spirit. Lead us to repentance. Teach us where we can turn from these things and show us how we can follow the Great One who is voluntarily the great victim for our salvation. And let us not be a people who just cope well with the damage done to us, but people who are truly healed by the triumphant victim, Jesus Christ. Amen.